This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is uh, Michael Messany from Duchess Ales in Wasaic, New York. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Hi. Thanks, Jamie. I'm very happy to be here. We've been super impressed with the beers that we've had from Duchess Ales over the past year or so. Uh, Ketzer Hellas was one of our top scoring Hellas's earlier this year in a very competitive race in our yearly lager issue. Uh, and of course, Duchess Ales has made a name for themselves over the history for brewing a lot of cask ales and English styles. And in fact, in the next issue of Craft Beer and Brewing that we are bringing out, there's a, a recipe for a cask ale, a bitter from uh, from Duchess Ales. Thank you for providing that for us, Michael. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Yeah, for sure. It, and so I figured, uh, you know, on the to uh, help promote that and get mm-hmm. you all excited about that and everything else, we might uh, have a conversation about brewing everything from cask ales to lagers and the sessionable styles that Duchess Ales specializes in. Before we do that, G&D Chillers, born in the Pacific Northwest from a lot of hard work and a singular goal, they have become the best damn chiller company in the world. Like you, G&D never settles. They are relentless and strive to be better every single day because they take pride in the work they do. They're Craftsmen who know good enough just won't cut it. Visit GD Chillers at CBC booth 3011 3011 or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Rar North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. Rar North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let Rar North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Speaking of CBC, if you all are going to CBC, and I hope that I will see many of you all who listen to the podcast there, um, we're throwing a happy hour Thursday, September 9th, 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. at Bierstadt Lager House. Uh, all the Bierstadt beers are on us. So, uh, yeah, come have a beer at Bierstadt. We're paying for it, and our friends at the Conte uh, Cheese Association are providing cheese to pair for everyone. So should be a fun time. Let's see how many slow pours they can actually pour in the course of two hours. Um, you know, but anyway, we'd love for you all to join us. Please do that. Also, our best in beer issue deadline is coming up a couple weeks away, September 3rd. And so if you were interested in submitting beers for our best in beer issue, yes, uh, get them to us here at our 1300 Riverside Suite 206 address by September 3rd. Having said that, now let's uh, let's talk, Michael, about uh, some brewing some beer. First, uh, yeah. why don't you share with everybody your uh, your brewing history? You have an interesting arc coming <laughs> here through uh, from small scale cask ale production into uh, you know a different kind of beer production, and so there's been an interesting evolution. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about your history in craft beer. Uh, what brought you into it? What you got into brewing, and uh, and how that arc has developed? Yeah, well, um, you know, I got into it. Well, I was in you know high school and college when I first started drinking beer. I grew up in Southern California um, and sort of witnessed that first wave of interesting West Coast beers in you know the mid mid to late '90s. 
um, had a definite affinity for them as well as old world styles. I was fortunate enough to travel a bit when I was younger, um, Germany, uh, the UK, where I'm sure we'll talk about. I've spent a lot of time and uh, always had a kind of a deep affinity for the the mystery and sort of culture surrounding um, beer antiquity and uh, deep beer culture. And it never really occurred to me to become a brewer. It's not something that was in my mind. But uh, after college, I um, I had sort of various odd jobs and ended up um, at one point doing a lot of work in music and have been a DJ since the, gosh, late 90s, where I first met um, the partner in Duchess Ales, Tim Lee, who started the brewery with me back in well, we started brewing together around 2012. And that really came about because Tim and I were working on a radio show. We had a radio show going for about 12 years um, on a station called East Village Radio in New York, down in the Lower East Side. And um, being, you know, enthusiastic beer drinkers, before every show, we'd like to have a few pints to loosen up, you know. And Is this talk radio or? Uh, no, no, we'd be, we'd be music. playing music. Yeah, yeah, we're both... Um, Tim was a pretty prolific club DJ from, you know, the late 80s to, well, to now, really. And yeah. um, I, I did some dabbling and um, spent a lot of time kind of around that world. So the radio show was something that kind of spun out of that interest, obviously. But um, we found that when we were preparing for these radio shows at the, at the little locals near us down the Lower East Side, there was just nothing we really wanted to drink. Um at that time, I don't think I was too big of a logger head and there wasn't really the loggers I wanted to be drinking anyhow at these bars. The ales to us were overpowering. Um, I It was kind of before the wave of hazies and what have you and uh, the kind of current right. IPA scene we're in right now. But honestly, we just couldn't find anything that we really wanted to drink. And sure. having spent a lot of time, not only with Tim, but my best friends from back in California who are British as well. Having spent a lot of time in the UK, kind of living there on and off through the late 90s and the early 2000s, and going, spending a lot of time there for work, I had a, a real deep love for cask ale, traditional ales, um, you know, that sort of first wave of the campaign for real ale, really kind of transforming the British uh, pub scene and the, the real ale scene maybe throughout the kind of, you know, the first decade of the 2000s into the into the you know to where we're at now i kind of saw that evolution of the uk being infatuated with their own beer culture again and i fell deeply in love with that and so tim and i got talking it's like you know we're certainly not finding these beers here let's just try to make some beer like why not um tim moved into a new apartment with some room that we could do a little small scale home brewing and that kind of coincided with me. Yeah, homebrewing in the New York City area, um, not an especially easy thing to do, no, certainly. No. Um, we have some great homebrew shops, and um, and certainly it's not a want of ingredients. It's Yeah, it's a space thing. Sure. And so Tim and I, um, at that same time, discovered the brilliant people at UK Brewing Supply, Paul Pendike, and we saw that they were selling 4.8-gallon pins. And we thought, hmm, like a five-gallon you know, homebrew will fit right into that pin, you know, we'll, instead of canning or rather bottling our beer, let's just make real ale, 
from our homebrew setup, put it right in the in the pin, have a little party, drink it ourselves, have friends around. And so that sort of um, that was sort of the origins of Duchess Ales. And uh, we immediately were able to find the malt we wanted, floor malted Maris Otter, um, all the hops that we could wish for. Um, you know, you know what great homebrew stores are like, the array of yeast strains available to us. It was all there. So it obviously took some getting up to speed, learning about brewing. But um, right. after a few trial and errors, we were able to make some cascales that we were really happy with. And once we started getting to the point where they were honestly quite tasty, we started sharing them with friends, um, giving the odd sneaky cask to a bar. I think you and I spoke about this the other day um, on the download to serve to their customers. And uh, <laughs> and it sort of got a we little bit. We won't name of, names. We, we won't incriminate anyone We won't anyone name on that. names. Beings, there's only about five beer engines left in New York City. You could oh. probably throw a dart and, and, and hit one yeah. of them. But um, yeah, so... It got, you know, it was really a thing for us to do, to drink the beer we really wanted to drink, share it with our friends. But then it got a little bit of a, and when we were doing this in bars, it got a little bit of a following. And uh, and then we were silly enough to apply for a license and and get a brewery, proper brewery up and running. So um, that was the kind of next step, um, which we did for, for quite a while and, and really just making cascales for that kind of dozen, you know, 10 to a dozen accounts in the New York metro area that had uh, beer engines and had the capability of serving cask ale. So that was a lot of fun, but um, a small bespoke business. Oh, it was, it was niche, very niche, Yeah, um, literally making, you know, 12 to 20 pins at a time, um, you know, and then hand delivering them and then going and picking them up ourselves, just the two of us. And it was, uh, ultimately uh something that we couldn't sustain so a labor of love but certainly not something that's going to drive enough revenue to justify the oh, work yeah. involved well, yes it certainly didn't drive any revenue and, and it was sort of a silly amount of work for a pittance of beer that a very small segment of the beer population enjoyed so yeah. um so we found a way forward and um we've kind of moved on to the next stage of the evolution of dutch sales which is really the birth of our kind of year-round flagship beer, GB Pale Ale, which is was formerly called Ghost Beer. Yeah, and that led to where we are today. So canning a lot of beer, making a lot of keg beer, but also providing real ales for the accounts, um, particularly in New York, that, that uh, demand it. Well, that's a lot of fun. And what a strange kind of evolution from, you know, cask ales and English style pub ales and, and real ale into, you know, this kind of, when well, I guess pale ale becomes a bit of a natural kind of evolution mm -hmm. from that. Yeah. Uh, but then also now lager on top of that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first foray into the kind of stage that we're at right now in Duchess Ales, where we're canning a lot of beer, uh, making a lot of uh, regular kegs was this ghost beer I mentioned. And that is sort of a hybridized beer that was a beer I conceived of originally for a Brooklyn restaurateur named Andrew Tarlow, who owns um, a series of wonderful restaurants here, Marlowe and Sons, Diner, Achilles Heel, Romans. And Andrew was always a keen supporter um, of, uh, of my enthusiasm for beer and said, you know, someday, why don't you make me, I'd love you to make me a lager. And I thought, well, I don't really have the capabilities right now and or nor the confidence to really make you a lager that I can really stand behind, but I can make you something like a Kolsch. And he said, well, okay, great, make a Kolsch. And then I thought, eh, 
don't really want to make a Kolsch quite yet either, because that's a real like statement. So I thought I can make sort of this hybrid English ale with a little bit of Kolsch yeast. And it was really an experiment to see if I could pull it off. And that was the burst of ghost beer, which is essentially, yeah, it's mostly English malt, a little bit of Pilsner malt, um, and a hybrid yeast that's actually three different strains, one of which is about a third of a Kolsch strain. And uh, we could talk about the technicalities of that later, but it was immediately a success for that restaurant and um, something I really enjoyed and, and, and my friends took to. And I thought, well, I could certainly make more of this. And, and that's kind of where we are today. But yeah. I thought we had gotten uh, ale brewing with, or uh, sorry, pale ale brewing and IPA brewing with Kolsch yeast out of our system on my my Texas uh, uh, podcasts <laughs> earlier in February. Yeah, but it's yeah. funny to, to see it coming. It's funny to see hear it coming back. I can't wait to. That, that's really interesting to talk about uh, using a blend of three yeasts to to brew a pale ale. It uh, seems like you like to make things more complicated than they they might need to be. Let's yeah. let's dive into that. I want to talk okay. about that. But before we do that, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever, so why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are a cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brands, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipe and make a non-alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality? N-A, no problem. The Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from the beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? The Alchemator from ProBrew and a no problem email contact at probrew.com for more information so michael let's talk about this uh this gb pale yeah. okay and and this uh strange approach uh and and some uh odd necessity of using a blend of three different yeasts in order to uh to, to make something like this mm. um talk to me about the creative process behind it i mean obviously you're formulating it for a restaurateur you're trying to think about something that's going to work in the context of restaurant food mm -hmm. um, to have character enough that people want to enjoy drinking it, but also to be able to support the, uh, you know, the kind of flavor and approach, you know, for these kinds of restaurants. Talk to me about that kind of ideation process and how you worked through that. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I come at this relationship with this restaurant tour and this the whole concept of this beer from a wine background. I've been in the wine business for 12 years um, working with a distributor an importer. Um, we were kind of big in the early days of importing a lot of natural wine um, to New York, and now it's being distributed around the country. But I, um, I really come from a wine background, and I kind of approach everything, especially in wine, with kind of balance first and foremost. So, um, and which is one of the things I really fell in love with uh, the new generation of English ales. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think of English ales, they think of warm and malty and kind of, you know, a little bit tired. But I'm sure you know, Jamie, from trips to the UK, the contemporary British brewing culture is very vibrant and people are making delicious balanced ales that are appropriate for serving um, on a beer engine, you know, with a proper mouthfeel, nice balance, but a nice kind of 
even I would say acidity, a nice kind of bracing quality to them that keeps them refreshing. So I thought I, I can do that with, you know, I can sort of hit this, like I said, this, this friend of mine wanted something like a Kolsch. So obviously brewed in kind of in ale fermentation territories. So I thought we can have a compromise between what I want from a new British ale, which is kind of the vibrancy, the balance, the biscuity malt character, uh, some of the noble hop aromas and nuance, but I can use a little bit of cold yeast, bring the fermentation temperature down slightly, crisp it up slightly, get a little bit of that, well, that kind of ethereal quality that Kolsch provides. And really, I can't say I knew it would work. I just, I just tried it. <laughs> sure, and sure. I called my friends and uh, the great people at White Labs in San Diego and who are the best people. You can always call them. And if you have a crazy idea like I had, um, they'll give you a good chuckle first and then they'll talk you through it. So I said, I'm thinking about blending some of your coal strain with a few other strains, a strain that I personally have that was, that was uh, vibrant. And then um, a few others. And I said, do you ever, have you ever done something like that? And I go, oh, yeah, we've done certainly custom blends. And I won't tell you which one, it, which one it is, but there is a proprietary blend we have where we do have some cold cheese in it. So I thought like, okay, brilliant. This should work. And if it doesn't work, who cares? We'll just try something else. I'm only making a little bit of it. But immediately it worked great. The yeast was um, strong, um, repitchable. Um, attenuated well and everything it was it was a success um it didn't look like there was any sort of stepped lags you know it looked like it was a harmonious fermentation it was vigorous um the beer uh finished out at a level i was comfortable with it was tasty so i thought well let's just keep on doing this and that's a strain that i've been you know i get three or four generations out of it now but i'll, I'll yeah I'm, I'm renewing it quite frequently because like you know, it is kind of a strange thing to be doing, so I don't want to push sure. it too far. There's that risk of it, of those getting out of balance in the blend, and For over sure. time, something out competing other uh, exactly other something is going to start dominating. But when yeah. they're all quite healthy, I think it's been a success. So yeah, that beer was immediately fit my palate, and the friend of mine was happy. Andrew was happy with it, and um, and it kind of raised some eyebrows from diners at uh, Marlowe and Sons and diners. And, and so it was uh, something to continue with. And you're asking about the vision for something like that. It's really just um, having played around a lot with home brewing and smaller scale brewing um, and being, uh, you know, pretty, pretty well schooled in the nuances of different malt characters and things like that. I, I felt if I could really envision a flavor profile, a mouthfeel, crispness, I could make it happen. Um, through trial or error. And luckily I, I kind of got it right the first time. And this is a beer that is, you know, I'm on my 17th generation of it and it's constantly changing. I remember listening to your brilliant interview with Dan Suarez and took uh, heed of what he said as well as the recipe is never really done. You, you know, you, it'd be hard to say you're always completely happy with something. So ghost beer is really a fun beer to have as my year round because it's, it's, gotten to where I really love it, but there are always little adjustments I can make. And, um, but thankfully the yeast is not really one of them. That's, that's been something that's really, um, been consistent in it. Talk to me about this in, you know, vision process, you know, because, you know, I'm always curious about this as you think about a beer, you know, how, what, you know, where does that language come from and how do you, 
get from that thing that's on your tongue that you sense to some idea of it and then think about how you can construct it out of the ingredients and then not just ingredients, but then move from those ingredients through process, through fermentation. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me to think about it, like, I mean, you're talking about a whole complex layer and sequence of things that mm-hmm. goes from how these ingredients, including hops and malt um, that are coming from specific origins with specific flavors, then move through that fermentation process where it's going to be uh, manipulated and uh, transformed in some sense by now three different strains of yeast yeah. working in concert to then create this finished product out there mm-hmm. that you will you know um, polish up and uh, you know carbonate, which also then changes texture and perception for it. Um, it's a lot of layers on that kind of creative process. So talk to me about yeah. how you articulate that and how you uh, you know kind of create these mental ideas of the way that these things work for you. Well, like I said, the ghost beer was really, you know, it's got a pretty complex malt bill and that's part of this vision. I like, there are a lot of elements to it. I think I'm using seven different malts in there, um, which is, which is a little odd, but I, I really think that there's a little bit of nuance everything brings. Um, it's really in my mind, I had this quality of malt and this, this mouthfeel that um, couldn't be brought about by just, you know, using hundred percent Maris Otter or with a tiny bit of crystal or something like that, a typical British kind of profile. Um, I use a little bit of white wheat malt. I use a little bit of spelt to bring just a hint of nuttiness, but it also kind of can achieve a little bit of what wheat does as far as, uh, you know, head retention, body, mouthfeel, things like that. Um, there's a little bit of oats in there as well, but, uh, and a tiny bit of Vienna, but it's all to just kind of move the sensory experience of the palate into harmony. I think it's like, I think I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, single malt, single hop, but it's, it's really not for my kind of brewing experience. I really like to manipulate things, you know, steer them into a channel that I'm perfectly happy with. And like the ghost beer, like I've gone through probably five or six different malt spectrum iterations. Do I know that the little changes I've made are exactly that perceptible difference in the beer? I'm, I'm not really positive, but a big part of my vision for my beers is my faith <laughs> in, <laughs> in, uh, in bringing the vision forward through, uh, through trust, you know, and, and through a lot of, I mean, that sounds silly, but I, I do have some partners I brew with and I ask a lot of questions. I taste a lot of malt. I taste a lot of hops. I, I, you could say I maybe overthink things a little bit. Um, but I really do want to kind of achieve that flavor that's in my head. Um, and, and there is certainly a lot of nuance to those decisions that I've made. Um, Sure. Now there's also, you know, batch to batch, you know, variation in the, some of the ingredients that you're going to use, you know, there's all these other things that can impact it as much as, you know, percentages, but, uh, you know, talk to me about some of that kind of malt variation. Like when you tasted earlier versions, what were those kind of things that you tweaked and and why, you know, are we talking about one or two percentage points here? Are we talking about adding a different malt in, in order to try to, actually help it realize the vision that you were uh, you had in your head 
Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, the early iterations of it were primarily Maris Otter, like, you know, 90%. Yeah. And then, um, and then I thought, this is like, it's almost too warm. It's like almost too biscuity. So I thought, well, let's blend a little, like, let's cut it with a little two-row. And then the, we'll, we'll bring out a little bit of body with some Vienna because I didn't really want to commit to too much crystal. I didn't want, I knew a color I wanted, but I knew I yeah. could achieve that through some different means, even things like a tiny bit of Munich or something like that to just get a little bit of color without having too much caramelization or sweetness or kind of, you know, we all know the woes of, that crystal can bring about or, sure, and sure. also the joy. But so I, I do like to use it, but, um, I think these little micro adjustments help you achieve little things like um, color, degree of, uh, say, biscuit to toast to cracker um, across that spectrum of base malt. So it's like, where do I finally go? Do I go 60-40, 70-30? And I've just, just kept on playing. Now I've kind of moved all the two row out of it. Now I'm using uh, Thomas Fawcett's Pilsner malt, which I fell in love with. And that's getting me to a level where it's like, a super light Maris Otter. So it's like a, it's biscuity, but it, it veers towards cracker, you know, and then I get a little bit of nuttiness from the spelt, a little comfort from the white wheat, a little, uh, a little protein from oats. And it's, to me, it's just harmony and I love it. And I love kind of being the mad scientist about it. Yeah. That's really fun. <laughs> and, uh, and I get a sense that even though that's where you are now, it may mm -hmm. not quite be finished and that there may be future, uh, uh, experimentation on well, the horizon, just as new things and flavors present themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I also, the ghost beers, the year round pale ale, but I do seasonal pale ales. Like right now, Parallax is out, um, which is kind of my later summer, um, super crispy, bright, vibrant, super dry pale ale. Um, moving into the fall, I have a new beer coming out called Vale, which is another seasonal pale ale. And that is where I get to experiment a little bit more with hops that I'm interested in that I might not be using in ghost beer, which is a consistent hop lineup. And um, I can express myself that way and learn about the interactions of, of different malts through my seasonal beers, which I wouldn't call experiments. There's, you know, I, I definitely perhaps overthink them, but, uh, <laughs> they are like, you know, parallax was a good example of a beer that I really wanted to kind of push the envelope with this, uh, Thomas Fawcett's Pilsner malt and, um, was able to, you know, about 95%, um, Fawcett Pilsner malt and see what that's all about. And it's, um, it's delightful. The previous year's version was made with best malts, Pilsner malt. So, uh, it's a way for me to kind of, you know, plan for the future. Maybe next year there'll be a blend of, of the two. Yeah. They each let's, lend their own character. Right, right. Let's uh, let's talk about the the yeast blend and mm -hmm. how that impacts this. You know, I'm yeah. curious about that because um, teasing out the difference between a three yeast blend mm -hmm. and a two yeast blend and a single strain, you know, fermentation. Uh, has to be splitting some hairs at some point, uh, you know, f for you, mm -hmm. how, how did you envision that? And what, how would you, I mean, I imagine you've probably fermented with some of those individual strains separately. How would you, you know, I, I guess, describe the impact of that kind of multi-strain mixed ferment or calling it's, a mixed fermentation doesn't seem exactly right, but, uh, blended, uh, you know, kind of yeast approach. Well, it's, it's pretty funny. Like, honestly, the, the truth to it and the sort of 
the simple answer is that I I knew I wanted to blend the Kolsch yeast in. I knew I didn't want to commit to a, a full pitch of it. And I'm from the West Coast. Tim, my partner's from the UK. So I wanted to use a kind of a typical UK strain that we were using um, sort of in the early days of, of Dutch sales, which is more of like a Southern England, like Sussex style yeast strain with kind of a little bit more easy ester production, um, uh, kind of a workhorse, but with a little bit of that um, comforting British quality, um, leaves a nice kind of residual maltiness. Cutting that with that coal yeast, which presents itself very cleanly. And then I also blended a West Coast strain because I'm from the West Coast. <laughs> and I didn't know it would work. I mean, again, like it sure. was an experiment. And and it really kind of, it, it's, they somehow worked in harmony that I can't quite explain. But um, I know you've had ghost beer and it's it's definitely my best selling beer. A lot of people have consumed it. I don't get a lot of comments from people like about the nuances you know, that they sure. might be picking up between the E-strains, but it's uh, it's become this Frankenstein that just does its thing. Um, I'd say it doesn't have the ester production of a UK strain. It doesn't have the kind of um, superpower headiness of a kind of a San Diego West Coast thing. It, it just does its thing. And I think the Kolsch provides a nice little um, clean slate for it as well. So, um, is there a science to it? No, it's just, just <laughs> it was just simply a vibe that I wanted to explore and it, and it worked. And, and that's only for ghost beer and for the others, I, uh, I generally choose a strain. Yeah. So for your seasonal pale ales, how do, how do those strains differ then from, uh, from this kind of ghost beer mainline? I really use a transparent strain. I'll use something like USO five. Yeah. Um, and I just want to, I really want to express myself through the hops and the malt and, and the balance. And I want to, um, I don't really make IPAs, um, so really what I'm doing is using the medium of the pale ale to express malt hop harmony, and um, I am still surprised that's not a bigger thing. Like when I go to beer stores here, I, I sometimes am the only pale ale in the shop, um, which is a bit of a head-scratcher to me because people seem to really like pale ale, but people don't brew a lot of it. Uh, I know it isn't the financial cash cow IPAs are right now, but you know, I'm, I'm a one man operation pretty much. And so I really need to brew what I, I like to drink. And, um, I don't have a lot of people looking over my shoulder. I don't, uh, I'm a pretty small brewery. I don't really have like a big following expecting something from me. So I can really just brew things. I really like to drink and, uh, you know, my beers certainly make me happy and, Pale ale makes me really happy. <laughs> so, you know, I, I can hear Tim Shasha from Cellar Maker in the back of my head cheering you on right <laughs> oh, now. Cool. As, uh, as you say big, that, we did a yeah, big fan of his. A yeah. couple weeks ago, we did a, uh, out in California, we did a class on brewing pale ale. And mm. uh, he's they've been pushing the, the pale ale mantra for that same reason. You know, there's that consumer element where the consumers in today's mm. beer market want some, quote unquote, bang for their buck. You know, and you know, and, and you know, I think that all of these things become elastic trends. Where you know, we've stretched, stretched, stretched. You know, you had that two thousands craft beer movement where it was all about big, big, big. Mm-hmm. You know, bigger flavors, more bitterness, bigger, more boldness. Like defining against you know mainline beer by going big on flavor, yeah. and then you had this 
fruity, hazy, soft thing, which was in some ways a reaction to that. Yeah. And then, of course, we've had this kind of resurgence in lager, delicate beers, um, pub ales, and, and the like, and an interest among brewers who've gone through that kind of big phase and are really re embracing that kind of idea of subtlety and balance. And I yeah. think that, you know, again, it's an elasticity. And then, here, you know, we, we continue to stretch and we're seeing the same thing, like bigger, sweeter, imperial stouts also driving things. More mm -hmm. sour has become now a move towards less sour, but also more fruit flavor. And so I think all of these things just exist in a never-ending dynamic of of up and down and, and point and counterpoint. And so, you know, we'll see. I think pale ale will have its moment again. And I think as with most things, it, it becomes that point where people who love beer start searching for something that's a little different than that thing that has been driving it for them. Mm -hmm. And then they, they come back and find that. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I have faith in pale ale, but I want to talk to you about pub ales, obviously, yeah. because that's a, a big part of the, the Dutch sale history. For sure. Before we do that, your beer deserves all your attention and Clarion makes it a little bit easier. Their food grade lubricants will help keep your system running smooth while also safeguarding your product from costly contamination and recall, because then you'll be in full compliance with food safety standards, all thanks to a simple switch to Clarion. Food safe system lets you focus on your craft. We'll drink to that. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So Michael, let's talk about that. Those uh, or go back to rewind a bit to those early days mm -hmm. of Duchess and this kind of inspiration for brewing real ale, cask ale. Um, talk yeah. to me a little bit about that. And uh, as you decided to start making these beers, where you sought that kind of inspiration and how you went about making beers that kind of scratched that itch that, uh, uh, you know, even being in a large metropolitan area like the New York City, greater New York City area, um, still wasn't um, immediately available, you know, even in such a big potential beer market. Yeah. I mean, the original inspiration for them really came from, like I mentioned, a lot of trips to the UK when I was, was quite young and sort of coming of drinking age, 18, 19, going with my friends staying with their family, you know, in uh, really in the first kind of port of call for me was in Hertfordshire, kind of north of, of London. And that's the first place I really experienced cask ale and just being immediately comforted by it and thinking like, well, this is the beer for me. And, it, you know, it's, and it was more than that. It was the culture surrounding um, the consuming of cask ale. You know, there weren't, 25 taps and you know the, it was sure, like sure. people were there the beer was important to this scenario but it was really conversation um being in the community and you found yourself all of a sudden having a great chat with the farmer living down the road and then you see you look at your glass and you've had three quarters of the pint and then you think just, well, that, that was good beer wasn't it and i think that is just such a wonderful thing. It's, uh, it's like, as they say, a social lubricant. It's, um, I just discovered this joy in this kind of effortlessly uh, consumable, delicious ale. And th years go by, every time I would go back and return to the UK, beer got better and better and pubs took more ownership of their um, tradition of uh, cellarmanship, maintaining cask ales, people like camera, um, supporting local pubs with 
publications, information, um, helping, you know, uh, helping new landlords uh, maintain beer engines and maintain casts um, in ways that they might have previously uh, overlooked. Um, and that has kind of, that evolution was something that when we started Duchess Ales, like, well, let's bring that culture here. Obviously, that's it's far easier said than done. There's only a few beer engines in the city at the time we started doing it. Um, it was a fad that kind of came and went in New York, and people said we were, you know, pretty silly to be doing it. But it was really something we were doing for ourselves. Uh, you know, we wanted to make those beers, and we wanted to experience that little slice of culture with our good friends. You can understand why a lot of these are pub driven, um, where the brewery and the pub are intimately connected, yeah. usually via business, because it's not just a I sell a fifteen and a half gallon keg, you know, that has a standard sinky fitting mm -hmm. and they can hook it up to any CO two beer line and it's probably gonna be okay. You know, there is an amount of care and involved like intimate involvement of of caring for that beer over the matter of days that after it's tapped that it is good to drink um you know and it, so True. there needs to be a volume to it but there also needs to be um you know a, a proper kind of care of the kegs they need to settle properly they need to be connected properly they need to be served and prepared like you know there's so much to it um it becomes hard to do that with external with bars you know in, in sure. that kind of a relationship yeah it takes a real commitment and it's and I can understand why it's not for everybody. And even if they love it, I can still understand why you might not want to maintain a, a, a cask. It is, you know, requires forethought, requires maintenance. It's not just, you know, popping the Sankey on there, you know, it's uh, right. But there are a few people in New York that have done a good job of, of maintaining them. And that was sort of our target market. Um, of course, we sold some casks to some people that didn't know what they were doing and, didn't aerate the beer properly, didn't, uh, didn't close the beer up properly at the end of the night. Um, the serving conditions just weren't right. And the beer ended up not really expressing itself the way we wanted. So we really had to cut that down to just a few accounts. But, um, you know, ultimately, it, I'm glad we did it. And I'm glad we still provide Cascale. But um, it is a thing it's not a culture that can just be uprooted <laughs> and brought here you know right or right. or it doesn't really translate here to a busy busy bar where you have a staff of like maybe three general managers and a bunch of bar. <laughs> right. you know right. it's, people don't want to deal with me it's a labor of love yeah, and it's a exactly. labor of love for for those uh publicans that want to serve sure. that and and they have to want to care for it at that kind yeah, of level sure exactly and uh you know and I, I definitely salute those that have and um you know people like i know you've you probably know greg Angert. um sure out of blue jacket in dc uh you know he's he's really dedicated himself to it and his casts are immaculately, immaculately maintained, and that's certainly somewhere we, we can usually be found on cask um, here in New York City at Grand Delancey, his bar. Right. Um, but yeah, he is, he is a dedicated individual, and that's what it takes. And uh, 
I, I could certainly. And a shameless plug for those of you that want to learn more from Greg, subscribe to our Brewing Industry Guide. Uh, we have a regular column on beer service, training, staff, you know, all of that care uh, that Greg's been writing for the last two years. And it's a beautiful insight into the kind of care. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about beer, but service, as you mentioned, mm. is just as important. You know, and that kind of care and culture that goes around making beer an experience and not just a product, uh, yeah. you know, is an important piece of this. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the, the drinking culture and beer culture that Cas Cascale comes from is slightly different than how we interact in bars here. And it's, uh, it's drinking here. is a little less communal. Um, people move around a little bit more. I know I certainly like to go and drink at five or six beer bars in Brooklyn sure. that consistently, I don't really have a local. I used to, but it's a long story with that. It's sort of been <laughs> shut down for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, damn yeah. it, COVID. Yeah, I know COVID and yeah, it's, it's a shame, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's understandable to me that Cascale isn't a big thing, but the beer, um, I think deserves a little better recognition because, you know, you fine ingredients, balanced beers. Um, and when properly served, uh, people tend to love them. Last year, I popped down and uh, and recorded a podcast with Stephen Kirby of Hogshead here in Denver, um, and you know it was a it was just one of those. I, I always enjoy drinking Cascale, um, but I never realized how much I enjoyed drinking Cascale until as we were talking, I looked down and realized that in so many minutes I had finished uh, three quarters of a pint. Yeah, there you go. Um, not thinking about it again, not consciously, but but enjoying it. Um, and being able to have that conversation and, uh, you know, and he of course pointed that out, like you could see just how big each sip was from mm -hmm. the lacing on that glass. <laughs> and that was, uh, and it tell, tells an interesting story about, um, just how you even drank that glass, uh, you know, but I think that is that kind of thing. People have that idea of what Cascale is and it doesn't always jive with their experience of drinking it. And you don't even think about that experience of drinking it unless you kind of reflect on it in that kind of way. But nonetheless, let's talk about yeah. how you brew it, um, you know, and how you've developed creative ideas about brewing different styles of pub ales, um, mm -hmm. you know, bitter, mild, etc. Um, you know, and, and then again, where you find yourself gravitating towards again, it's not just about building the, the flashiest beer. In a lot of ways, it's about building a beer of, of subtlety and uh, extreme nuance that is enjoyable, but not that doesn't steal the show. Talk to me a little bit about that creative process. Yeah, well, I mean, currently every ale that I make, I also make casks of. And really the first thing in my mind when I'm conceiving of a new ale is like, how is this going to taste coming out of a beer engine? Which to me, you know, this is this is the epitome of an ale for me, uh, is, is naturally, naturally conditioned. Um, so... But a big part of that and a big part of what makes those beers drinkable is um, the nuance of the interplay between malt and hops. So I personally brew a, maybe slightly drier beers than most like really UK centric breweries. I, um, I generally um, am a little bit more in the old school West Coast category as well, um, as far as like mouthfeel um, back in the kind of golden age of early 90s West Coast pale ales or something like that. Um, so I do appreciate that kind of um, crispy, bitter backbone um, to, a, to accompany that toasty malt. Really every 
ale that I make, I conceive of as something that I'd first like to drink on cask. And that so even something like GB pale ale is something that you also think about. You prepare casks of that. Oh yeah, always, always. Okay, and um, GB is probably on the uh, crispier, lighter side of my seasonal ales, and it's it's wonderful on cask. And um, and uh, I urge you if you're in New York in September, maybe get down <laughs> to Grand Delancey and try one. Um, I'm about to uh, make some for those guys, but it is. Really, ale with balance and nuance is what I'm after, and that is always going to work on cask. Um, I haven't currently been brewing such British-centric styles um, other than Ms. May's, my ESB, and Augur, my Porter, which I'd say are pretty traditional English examples of both. Uh, Ms. May's might veer a little bit towards the Pacific Northwest ESB category, only in the sense that it's got a little bit more of a core of bitterness. Um, but auger is a straight up English, um, porter. And those I are love it when we were saying like Veers Pacific Northwest. I mean, we're probably talking about like five or eight IBUs difference here, you know, you know, pr- fairly subtle things, or is it, is it bigger than that for you? No, it's, it's subtle. It's subtle. Yeah. It's just, there is a present bitterness to it. Um, which I like, and I, you know. Wait, so your ESB is actually bitter, unlike everyone else's ESBs, which uh, <laughs> are named bitter but don't taste that. Yes, exactly, and I, it's, it's exactly, it's an ESB with a with a, a special bit of B. Um, it is, it is, it does have a little bit of bitterness. Um, I've made versions of it in the past that are kind of uh, malty and and uh, full of joy, but I, I personally like that little backbone of of. Um, of bitterness. Uh, so what does that look like for you? I mean, are there specific hops that you find add, uh, you know, give you that bitterness, but in a kind of soft and rounded way that complements this English approach that gives it just that hint of Americanness? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've played around with kind of different variations, but, um, in that ESB, I will do a pretty generous, um, uh, 60 minute edition of something even like Centennial, um, something that is a little bit, shows a little bit of kind of a new world character, but really mm-hmm. has kind of like a noble stability to it. Right. Um, but I use, you know, UK varietals, Challenger. I really like using Willamette. Um, I like bittering with Willamette. I like using it throughout the process. Um, played around with bittering with that as well. Um, and then as well as like 10 minute editions, whirlpool editions, very light dry hopping. So it's not, it's not so rooted in traditional, you know, ESB culture of, of the UK where you'd, you know, you'd have a bittering edition, small one, a 30 minute, a 10 minute, what have you, and no dry hopping probably, um, you know, and maybe a eight to 15% edition of crystal malt. I'm I'm really making a little bit drier beers, but I still think there's plenty of uh, malt expression coming through. So when you say dry, what's a typical kind of finishing gravity for your ESB? Oh, uh, four two something like that. Yeah, which isn't so dry. Not- that's yeah. not so dry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so more dry is really a that relative was, statement. The, the, the last iteration was, was, was quite dry and quite bitter. And I think I'm going to probably this fall, I'm going to go back to a slightly more old school approach. Uh, yeah. 
but that's that's the fun thing. I'm I'm small and I can play around, and uh, I'm I'm not really uh, out to wow people. I really want kind of to find that middle aged dad like me <laughs> that makes sure. me really happy drinking sure. something kind of uh, an everyday sessionable beer. So. And there's a little bit of a, a fusion element here and not, I mean, fusion can be a bad word in some contexts, but I think that, um, you know, finding a way to bridge some of these styles for American palates and American, uh, drinkers isn't mm-hmm. always the the worst approach. Um, you know, for you as you're bringing ESB, like what's, what's the crux move, you know, what, what are the, the crucial pieces there, um, that you have to get right for it to kind of carry through. Um, what are those things that you won't change because they just always deliver a delicious beer for you? Well, um, well, base malt is supremely important, obviously. And I'm like most people who are interested in British beer, um, use primarily Maris Otter. Um, so this is a Maris Otter based beer. I've, I've come to, um, kind of a happy relationship with, uh, crystal malt and I generally will blend, um, different degrees of roastings. I usually will use something like a 40 and then something very light um, to blend into a kind of a a 20 odd um, dose that I'll I'll use pretty judiciously. Um, I rarely exceed, you know, five or 6%, which is, you know, if you're looking at British kind of brewing, that's quite light. Um, But I will, I can adjust a little color by using even something like, uh, like we were talking about earlier, using Vienna and Munich and stuff like that to, you know, to add a little intangible to it and even a little bit of color and a little mouthfeel. And, uh, you know, it's a beer I've made and it's the ESB, the Mismaze is really kind of based on the, the classic Duchess Ales bitter that we were making for a long time in cask. Um, and I use a little bit of oat malt as well, which is not unusual. Um, faucets, uh, you know, whole oat malt, um, is, is wonderful. And I will use a little bit of flaked wheat for protein. I'm not so rooted in like, you know, a dogmatic approach to, is this English or not? I, I, you know, I'm using English (laughs) ingredients and, uh, it has that kind of malt character to it, but it's, uh, I think it appeals to kind of contemporary American consumers as well that are after something a little balanced and for the hops, I, you know, I'll choose pretty noble hops. This last iteration, I was able to source from the UK some Pilgrim, which is a fun hop um, that I played around with a long time ago that I'd been on the lookout for here in the US, but it's been increasingly kind of hard to find that. And some, even a little bit of Cascade. Yeah. Uh, Willamette, um, as I mentioned, sometimes there'll be a little Centennial in it. Uh, so nothing, uh, nothing too overpowering, but... Uh, Nice expressions. Sure. What is Pilgrim? Uh, uh, how would you describe the the flavor and aroma of Pilgrim as it differs from other uh, other English hops? Well, it's it's a little higher in the sort of alpha acid category. Okay. So it gets up into kind of 10, 11. I think of it as a, almost like a – it's it's so hard like from just a, my exposure to it, which has just been twice. It's It's – more it's got like a cedar quality to it um rather than kind of a piney resinous the woodsy mm. element to it are more in that yeah. kind of comforting cedar note um and uh a little bit um you know like i said it's got that 
it's got quite a bit of acidity, um, so it does it does bitter quite well. But I, I get kind of a warm, comforting, cedary note from a little bit of lemon. Like it expresses a little bit of citrus, but um, nothing like say Centennial does. Um, so it's a little bit of a toned down Centennial with a little bit of cedar element. I would sure. say at least that's how it's expressed itself in my beers. Of course, I'm blending it with some other things that also give those impressions. So. But when I um, when I first received the hops and cracked them open and had a good whiff and actually made a little tea with them as well, um, those are the elements that I picked up and I was quite yeah. happy. But it doesn't appear to be too popular on the <laughs> on the U.S. brewing circuit. Uh, yeah. Um, talk to me about fermentation on your uh, you know traditional English style ales. I imagine you're not doing the kind of crazy yeast blending on those. That no, you're doing sir. Some no, I'll choose a I'll choose a. A UK strain that sometimes I'll go to some uh, vault strains that are available from our friends at White Labs, um, but sometimes I'll use uh, you know just just sort of a lower ester producing British strain that will at the time be available to me. Um, I'm not <laughs> yeah. there is you know what I mean. Yeah. I'll, I'll play around with it. Um, I I think I'm not getting too from the different strains I've used. There haven't been big differences. And I'll use that same one in the kind of more English leaning style, like the Porter. Um, I'll, I'll see what's available to me at the time and, and go with it. But usually I go for the kind of less ester heavy, more subtle strains. Um, and I'm particularly keen on the South and East of England for those, um, those strains, it seems from, from what I've played. With. Is that because of your Southern California roots or is that just, um, does that uh, reach your own personal beer history? And it's kind of my personal there? beer history. And I, I, I've spent a lot of time in, you know, Devon, Dorset, Sussex, uh, East Anglia, where the beers can be, um, to me, a little bit more mineral and a little bit more dry. Um, I like to use a little bit of chalk in my English ales as well, mm-hmm. which is, not, you don't see it too much, but I, you know, I blend a little chalk with gypsum and, you know, it, it, I do a pretty much a standard mineral addition, but with it, which a touch of chalk to give it a little bit of that Southern UK exposure. Just uh, a little bit of water adjustment to. Yeah. You know, and from a, is that really just about mouthfeel? Um, or it's is about it mouthfeel. About- yeah. It's about that kind of mineral finish. Um, and I, I, I think there must, you know, I'm, uh, don't go too deep into brewing science, but there must be some interplay between those minerals and uh, the chemistry that's happening and the hops transformation in the process. And, um, you 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 could tell me better than than I can explain, but I I do get a perceptible quality to um, just that little bit of chalk I use. It's it's on the it's on the tip of your tongue when you finish the beer. I think so you're that saying that even, that even impacts the way that the hops express in the beer. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it's, it's when I did start using just a tiny, tiny touch of chalk, uh, there was a certain clarity to it. Um, just like if you're drinking, uh, mineral water from a, you know, a calcium limestone rich, uh, source, you get that perceptible kind of tingle. Uh, maybe, maybe the hops kind of have a little interplay with that. Yeah. Interesting, you know, and and I think it's fascinating that uh, even in a kind of you know sweet and warming malt driven, you know, but also hops uh, supported kind of uh, you know English style like this, that you can carve out this identity and this idea, you know, for beers 
that are individual um, and even if they are inspired and feel as a part of that tradition they still have this kind of expression to them um, yeah well, minerality is, is, is a little lift you know just like in wine yeah. wine to me is most interesting with acidity and minerality and and um, <clears throat> the minerals certainly give that little boost uh, that I, I perceive in a mouthfeel that um, gives a little bit of hot clarity. It, I could be wrong. <laughs> well, if you sense it, then you're not wrong, right? It's, I, yeah. That's what I sense. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Porter, uh, you know, mm -hmm. how big, uh, are the kind of darker styles in, uh, you know, your production and how do you build some identity out of some of these, uh, you know, darker pub approaches? Well, I, I'm really just making the Porter right now. I, I, at some point we'll, we'll make another mild or something like that. But I, again, I, I, I sort of veer away from the more kind of so I'm already sort of pigeonholed as sort of an English brewer, so I haven't really gone gone the the, the route of just making a dead mild. Uh, my porter veers into mild territory. Um, it's 4.4 ABV. You know, I when I think of a real mild, I'm getting in the threes, um, but it's not quite that malty. It kind of veers more towards my ESB's approach. Um, I use a blend of darker crystal malts um, as well as some. Uh, some midnight wheat, you know, and, um, roasted, roasted barley, um, to kind of get the color I need, but a very small amounts, very small amounts. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Very, very small amounts. Um, you know, under a percent and sometimes, yeah. and then I will, um, adjust that mouthfeel accordingly with, like with something like, uh, Munich. Um, so I'm getting a uh, mouthfeel and color without that kind of residual, kind of heady, heady kind of crystal caramelization notes. Um, and that is, again, something I perceived um, through just um, trial and error and um, doing a lot of uh, homework about what these things bring to sure. an ingredient, uh, bring to a recipe. And um, you have to just go for it in the end. Yeah. Um, so I do blend quite a lot of elements, but... Uh, it's like it says on the tin, you have to kind of trust it's bringing that element to your beer. And um, I see nothing wrong with using a whole bunch of things to blend elements to make something that's exactly what you want. So sure. my porter tends to be on the drier side, um, but presents itself incredible on cask. It's my favorite beer on cask. Yeah. I'm actually sitting on one. I think we talked about this in the back room. That was kind of a COVID casualty that's... Uh, <sighs> It's getting it's getting on, but I still think I might tap it and have some friends around for a party and see what it's like. Fantastic. So let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit. Yeah. Um, big picture. The way we we tend to finish here is this question about uh, you know what does success look like for you? So for mm. Duchess, you've gone from small scale pub uh, you know cast scale production. And now you're in a broader arrangement, brewing, mm -hmm. uh, sharing space with another brewery, yeah. brewing 30 barrel batches, um, kind of amping up production. Mm -hmm. Your cans are now available everywhere from Colorado, where we are. I just saw someone, I was in Northern Virginia a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. You know, they're, you're getting out there and Duchess Ales are, are uh, uh, you know, getting to, to places that are certainly outside of the, the metro New York area. Yeah. What is, what's the, the goal? for the brand, for the beer, and, uh, you know, how will you know when you've become successful? 
Well, I've, I've, I think I've been successful for a long time because I've made something I enjoy and it's, you know, it's, that is success. I, the first time the smile came over our face when we tasted our first pin of ale that we made was overwhelming. So I'd say it's been a big success, but, um, you know, I'm not, I, at this point, um, I'm sort of really pretty much flying solo in the business. I have a lot of inspiration from my partner, Tim, but I'm really the creative director and brewing director of this operation. Um, and so I'm, I'm taking it slow and, and, and living by that kind of ethos of making exactly what I want to drink. Um, I like the route I'm on right now with having year rounders available and then rotational pale ales. Um, it's something that's become predictable for my customers and predictable for distributors and retailers. When a new season comes around, there's going to be a new Dutch of sales rotational uh, beer to put slide in there. You mentioned Ketzer. Um, that was a big move for me to go into kind of lager production because I dearly, dearly love the traditional um, old world lagers, the beers of Bamberg, um, and I have a deep love for things like Mars Brow. And I always wanted to make something like that. And I did a lot of research and a lot of thinking about making Ketzer. And it really turned out exactly what I wanted it to be. You talked to a lot of brewers about technique, lager technique. Um, I learned from listening to your podcast. I learned from talking to a lot of brewers. And um, I made it the way I was comfortable with and that I thought would produce the results um, that I would desire. And it's, it's been a successful beer for me. And so you're talking about the future. I want to make some more lager. There's, I've got another one planned um, for the kind of mid fall called Walzer that you can keep an eye out for. But uh, again, that's a, it's another type of lager that I, I have an affinity for. I don't think I'm going to go crazy, but yeah, success is to continue to make things that um, me and my friends enjoy that the distributors are happy with. I get good feedback from customers. Um, and I'm at this point, I'm not chasing anything. Um, you know, I'm, I feel I've been successful. So it's, sure. it's, uh, it's been a really cool project. Um, it's growing and with the growing comes having to learn how to do new things and explore new partnerships, uh, at some point, I'm probably going to have to build my own brewery. <laughs> it's inevitable, yeah. but I, you, you'd mentioned the partnership I have um, with my contract facility right now is a deep and wonderful one. Um, and we can go into more into that, but that's a place that's been an endless source of, of learning and inspiration. Uh, they've supported me in my vision. Um, they've taught me things that I needed to know, but also let me drive the bus and say it sounds like a good idea go for it like you know there's no reason you can't do it that way and the beers turned out in a way that is satisfactory to me so this is at you know at current times a partnership that really works for me yeah. and you have an active uh, relationship with them it, it's not a here's the recipe deliver the package to beer you, you no, brew it's, and it's, you're you're involved in that kind of production process yeah it's it's really wonderful um you know, give shout out to Greg Mesh, the head brewer over at Great South Bay, is just a fucking, he's a total force of nature and he is um, incredibly uh, knowledgeable in all beer styles. Um, 
he's steeped in incredible amounts of brewing history. When I talked to him about things like lager, he, <laughs> he could, you know, for 24 hours, he can just continue to talk about lager because he really loves beer. And so when I'm excited about something, he's excited about it. Um, I'll develop my recipe based on, you know, a vision I have for a beer. We meet up and we, uh, he, he doesn't ask, he doesn't say, well, this might not work. He doesn't really give me that kind of feedback. He said, just let's do it. But if there's something that may seem, you know, in the recipe, say, based on what you've given me here, like you might be off on these IBUs. So let's like, you know, let's maybe rethink for the profile you're going for. Maybe we can back off here. He's rarely kind of put, asking me to push the envelope. He's really kind of sometimes keeping me at bay, which I love. But, um, you know, it's an endless source of knowledge. And on brew day, we go there, we make beer. And uh, like I think I said to you the other day, I get to do all the fun stuff, but I don't get to uh, clean you don't tanks. Have to clean so. the tanks. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly, you know, it ain't free. It is, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, throwing money up in the air because it's a very expensive way to go about things the way I'm doing it. But um, I'm learning loads and I'm, I'm making, I think, beer that uh, I can really stand behind. So it's been a wonderful experience. Well, that's a, it's a fun way to, to see that. I think that, uh, you know, with the amount of capacity that's out there in the world of craft beer, um, a lot of people get tied up in the idea of, I have to build my own brewery, uh, mm-hmm. especially, you know, from the, the first, from the get go. And, um, rather than going that route, it is a far more efficient uh, thing to do from a capital and from a, a human kind of approach to, use these facilities and put put that equipment that's out there um to more use rather than simply building more and more and more of these um you know i hope that all of us in the world of craft beer think about sustainability long term oh for sure as we're building this new capacity is this capacity that will be used in the future Mm -hmm. or is this going to be uh something that will all you know and if it's not then why would you go (laughs) spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars um going you know to build this and so so using that and you working together in order to to use that kind of capacity, I think is a very smart approach. Yeah, it's it's been great. And and I just, you know, I got lucky. It's a great yeah. place and they have a great attitude. Um, and I'm allowed the autonomy that I need to kind of express myself. And I, I can't ask for more. Um, do I need to eventually take the next step? Yes. You know, because... Um, I, I could I could go into many because reasons. the costs of of brewing yeah. other facilities can exactly. certainly uh, yeah. cut out any profit and sustainability in your own business. Sure, exactly, sure. but I, right yeah. now it's um, I'm I'm ticking along at a good pace and sure. all, all is healthy. Yeah. Well, the beer has been delicious that we've tasted, and uh, I appreciate you talking with me about uh, you know the way that you uh, ideate and uh, you know and create a lot of these beers. Uh, GND's singular goal is to be the best damn chiller company in the world. Set your compass by Rara North Star Pills. Try fruit juice concentrates from Old Orchard. Make non-alcoholic beer with the ProBrew Alchemator, and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, hey, we've got these all-access subscriptions, which will give you the Brewing Industry Guide, which features things like Greg Engert's column on uh, uh, Behind the Bar. 
among other things, if you're a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing, take a look at the October-November issue where Michael's uh, bitter recipe is in our Cascale section uh, feature package of the magazine. Thank you again for that. Um, if you are coming out to Denver for CBC, don't forget the Craft Beer and Brewing Happy Hour Party at Beerstadt Lagerhouse Thursday, September 9th, 3 to 5 p.m., and uh, Michael, if people want to learn more about Duchess Ales, where do they find you? Uh, you can go to duchessales.com. There's not a ton of information, but I keep the current beers up there as well as the kind of archive. Um, I have an Instagram, uh, duchess underscore ales. Uh, I'm not too active on social media. I don't really have a Facebook account. <laughs> I'm a one man operation trying to do it all at the moment. And uh, I should probably get with the times and uh, get my social media together but um really focusing it's on the, the beer, beer right brand now. of mystery uh, you know yeah yeah well you know um it's uh, it, i always you know i'm a music lover and it was always fun for me to discover something right you go into a record store and never heard of it you take it home and it's your new favorite thing and maybe somebody out there will pull my beer off the shelf and wonder who they are and, and really enjoy it so there you go. Dig in the Mystery's crates of your thing. local beer shop yes, and exactly. uh, discover that such a sales gem. Uh, yeah, just, sure. just, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me on the podcast. Yeah, it's uh, been cheers. a pleasure. Yeah, and I wish I could see you in Denver, but I'm not going to make it this year. But well, I'll, I'll get up that way to, to New York one of these days soon. Yes, it's good. It would do. be good to get back to my old stomping grounds. And indeed, uh, yeah. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Take care. Bye bye. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.